is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let us pray. Well, faithful God, you have opened the gate of mercy for your people. You've been faithful to that promise that you made to Abraham, to his descendants, through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have opened that, that way for us to be present with you and to live with you forever in holiness and righteousness and in peace. And so this morning we come to you with that confidence that your word gives us and we look to you for compassion and we gladly respond to your love and faithfully walk in your way through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first hymn is number 341, O Breath of Life Comes Sweeping Through Us. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Let us therefore rejoice by putting away all malice and evil and confessing our sins with a sincere and true heart. Let us confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we were captive to sin and could not free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, neither have we loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. 
Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. People of God, hear the good news. The saying is sure and worthy of universal acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And you, Christian people, were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. We say together, praise be to God. Holy people of God, our Lord told his disciples to love one another. It's, it's in the gospels, all the gospels. It's a very common uh, phrase that Jesus, or uh, common statement that Jesus made, and it's picked up by the apostles in the epistles. It's the love of the Christian community, love one another. It's a command that you cannot obey without each other. The book of Acts gives us an example of such love when it tells us that the early Christians had all things in common and distributed their goods to each other as there was need. We love one another when we look out for one another, help each other, give to each other, and sacrifice ourselves for each other. There are plenty of examples of self-oriented love in this world. In fact, if you want to see the common expression of love in this world, it's self-oriented. It's love me first. Love you, maybe, second. We live at a time when community has failed and people are, care mostly about themselves and maybe their families, but not much more than that. And this can happen in the church as well. We can be, care and love ourselves and sort of ignore the other members. There's such a thing as a narcissistic Christianity that's focused on our own spirituality, our own growth in Christ, our own needs, and not the needs of others. We are to be a testimony to one another love, not that self-love that is so common in our sinful world. Now then, love one another. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is 652, Savior, Teach Me Day by Day. Savior, teach me day by day, love's sweet lesson to obey, sweeter lesson cannot be, loving him who first loved me. With a child's glad heart of love, at thy bidding may I move, prompt to serve and follow thee, loving him who first loved me. Teach me thus thy steps to trace, strong to follow in thy grace, learning how to love from thee, loving him who first loved me. Loving finds employ in obedience all her joy ever knew that joy will be loving him who 
first loved me. Let us pray. It is part of our worship and our life in Christ to pray for the church and for others in need. Let us pray. Everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, whose plan it was before the foundation of the world to reconcile us to yourself through Jesus Christ, that he would be the one through whom all things are created and the goal, the end of your creation. And we thank you that we are included in this reconciliation in Jesus Christ. We who once were of a hostile mind toward you, who did not obey you, who did wicked things, but now we love you and want to please you and we praise you, for that is the work of your grace. Bring your beloved, uh, being your beloved children in Christ, we now pray you would hear our prayers. O Lord, as you have defeated the rebellious powers and the dominions and rulers and authorities of this world, defeated them in Christ, we pray you would stop those who enslave people for their own purposes, which is happening all around the world, and those who terrorize others. We wait eagerly the day when these powers shall publicly bow their knee to Christ. We pray for the end of oppression the end of the war in chaos in Ukraine and on the border with Mexico, in Afghanistan, North Korea, Syria, in our cities, all these places, we pray for uh, these things to cease. Hear our prayers. Our Savior, keep us and your entire church in the faith of salvation, even as it is tested the faith that Christ is Lord and Savior, and that in him you reconcile us, and by him alone we are presented to you as holy, blameless, and beyond accusation. In a world that, where our faith is sorely tested, we pray that you would keep us firm in that, that true faith in Christ. We do pray for Christians under tremendous pressure in this world, in many places by Islamic powers in Iraq, Iran, Sudan, Eritrea, Pakistan, Somalia, Nigeria. For Christians in China and North Korea who must live under hostile governments, for Christians in Central America and other places who are enticed to blend their faith with pagan beliefs, for Christians in the United States who have a me-centered gospel and are tempted to accommodate the Christian faith to the culture. By your grace, may all of these, these Christians, confess the faith, remain steadfast in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the apostolic teaching. And we do remember our missionaries at work, such as the Fultas, Sam Fulta and his family, and Mike McCabe and his family in China. Here are prayers for the Christians who live in hostile places and for our missionaries. With groaning, as Paul says in Romans 8, that cannot be put into words, we look forward to the restoration of your creation. Give us wisdom in how to use the resources of the earth and not to just uh, be reckless about how we use these resources. And we do pray you would help the firefighters to bring the wildfires uh, out west under control. Hear our prayers. Merciful Father, as those who depend upon your strength and grace, we thank you for how you have upheld this congregation. 
drawing us closer together. And we ask you to continue to strengthen and heal your people here and our friends, especially now we pray for those who have specific needs. Our prayers go up to you for the wellness of body and soul of Fawn and Jeff and Terry and Eduardo, Luca, and our friends Scott and Becky, Mrs. Mesner, Bill, Phyllis, Tom, the Hannum family, Kathy, Angie, Karen, and others we name to you in silence. Comfort them, strengthen their hearts and minds, keep their faith upon Christ, and give them good care. For your mercies to those whom we have named, for strength when we are weak, for peace when we are anxious, for faith made sure when we are confused, and for loving us with unending faithfulness in Christ, we praise you, O Holy Father, by the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. Come now to the reading and preaching of God's word. Let us first take some time to prepare our hearts and minds to receive God's word. Let us pray. (laughs) 
Heavenly Father, once again as we gather, we are reminded of our need for your word and how it informs us about you and your love and your, your plan for redemption. We pray, Father, that as we come now to this time, that you would prepare our hearts and minds, that you would soften them and make them fertile ground to receive your word, and that through that hearing, we would be transformed and renewed, strengthened and refreshed, that those who are distant would be brought near, and that your son's name would be glorified and honored. For we do pray that in his name. Amen. Our first reading comes from the book of Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." Our Psalter response then comes from Psalm 31, verses 1 to 10. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a Lord of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side. As they seem together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Our epistle reading comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4.
Listen now to God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus' resurrection has a wide bearing on the Christian life. And of course, there would be no Christian life without it, as Scripture makes amply clear. Just like there would be no Christian life, we wouldn't be Christians, without Jesus' incarnation, his death, ascension, and Pentecost. I've tried to pick up the wide bearing of Jesus' resurrection with the sermons I've preached these last few weeks of Easter. I've preached on Jesus' resurrection and his victory over death, on his resurrection in the new community, his resurrection in our moral behavior, and his resurrection in our new life, life with God. And today, it is Jesus' resurrection and our bodies. Now, the sermon this morning will come mostly from our lessons in John chapter 20 and 1 John chapter 1. One of the things we need to be aware of when we listen to a text of Scripture is that there is a principal message of that text. It has a central thought. 
Have you ever heard a crowd of people talking and each one's talking about their own thing, like on a busy street? It's noisy, it doesn't fit together. You sit there and listen, you catch a few words one person is saying, and then something different from another person, and so on and so on. It just kind of bounces around. Well, the texts of Scripture are not like that. They are not wandering, excuse me, they're not wandering around. They were written with meaning and intentionality. They were written as part of a larger writing, so the texts that we read are part of a larger writing, and they fit together with the larger themes of that writing. Each text also has a message within the larger themes of the whole writing. So the texts fit in to the larger writing, but they also have their own um, themes of the text itself. In other words, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, our gospel lesson today, ties into the themes of the entire gospel of John. John wrote his gospel to teach certain things about Jesus Christ. It's not a mess. The Gospel of John is not a mess of texts that are just thrown together with no connection to each other. The same is true with the individual texts of Scripture. They have a central theme, and the verses all tie into that theme. I wish I had a whiteboard here. I'd start drawing it. I've I've done this with our Bible study. I'd draw it up there. Occasionally, a writer like Paul, the Apostle Paul, might digress for a moment in his writing, but it is to return to something he said earlier. It's sort of what he's writing about provokes a thought and he connects back to something he said earlier. Or he does make another point. And this makes his writing more complicated. It's sometimes hard to follow Paul. However, it does not mean there is no central message in the text. A good analogy that I've heard is that it's like a symphony. Each, Each section of the orchestra is playing its distinct part, but it all fits together and it has a principal theme. You can focus in, you can listen, and a lot of times I do that. I listen to some of the subpart, to some of the background sections, not the, the main line, but some of the background parts. And I listen to those, um, like in one section. But you, you cannot or I cannot isolate it from the larger theme. So there are the background uh, sounds being made, but they fit into the larger theme. And if you really want to listen to that piece of music, you always have to keep that in mind. You can't just totally isolate one section from the main um, theme of that piece of music. The main theme of John chapter 20 is belief in the risen Jesus and to carry out the apostolic mission. Okay? Those are kind of the main points in John 20. The t- this text tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead and he came to his disciples. And I'm talking about the whole chapter of John 20. The church's mission is to continue Jesus' mission to be present in the world as his witnesses, with Jesus present with them by the Holy Spirit. So John chapter 20 talks about um, Jesus being raised from the dead and coming to his disciples and belief in him is risen, and then also the, the continuing witness and mission of the church, the apostolic witness. Consequently, in order to be his witnesses, there must be faith in the risen Jesus. And that is why John chapter 20 has four stories of belief in Jesus. Four stories. We only heard two of them. There is the story of the disciple who went to the empty tomb with Peter right in the beginning of chapter 20. This disciple, unnamed, went to the tomb with Peter and believed Jesus was risen from the dead. That's the first story, belief in Jesus, the risen Jesus. One of John's ways of saying someone believed in Jesus is to say that person saw the Lord. That's a John way of saying they believed. 
And that is why it says in the, in the story about Mary, the second story, Mary, who did not at first know Jesus, but when he called her name, she knew him and she went to the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. It's a story about belief. And then there's the story of the risen Jesus appearing in the room with all the disciples minus Thomas. And we heard that story this morning. And John says, they saw the Lord. They believed. Lastly, there's Thomas who comes to faith when the risen Jesus returns. Jesus showed him his hands, his side. And Thomas said, says, he, he, he uh, proclaims his faith. He says, my Lord, and my God, in verse 28. Jesus identified Thomas's exclamation as belief. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This is the principal message of John chapter 20. Faith, belief in the risen Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. Believe in the risen Jesus and then go out to be his witnesses um, according to the apostolic teaching. Now I point this out because in, my, in today's sermon I want to focus on one of the parts of this text that supports the main point but not those main points. So I want to be really clear about that because it's very easy for us to just pull something out and run with it and just completely divorce it from the main point, which is like listening to the symphony and then in, in focusing in on the kettle drum and just listening to that, that rhythm of the kettle drum and totally losing its place within the whole symphony. We don't want to do that, and I'm not trying to do that this morning. But it is worthwhile to listen and to pay attention to some of the subparts of the text that support the main point. And that subpoint that I want to look at this morning is the resurrected Jesus and his body. So what John tells us about Jesus' body must be kept in place with the main themes of the text. Now, in our day, we must hear what our scripture lesson says about the body, because in the main, in our society, in the main, our society thinks of our bodies as incidental to who we are. The body is something we live in, and we use, but in the common imagination, it is more like an instrument than essential to who we are. I was talking to someone a few years back about the burgeoning, at that time, the burgeoning transgender movement, <clears throat> which he was defending. And he said, who we are is not down here, pointing to his crotch, but up here, pointing to his head. And we have this idea today that our self is the interior part of us, the part of us that thinks and wills and chooses. That is our authentic self, not the limited, weak, and dependent body. Now, the church always lives within society. We cannot not live within society. It works. Uh, we, we have to work with the thinking of the society we are in. And sometimes we find some some ways of thinking that actually can be helpful in our teaching, explaining and understanding the gospel, promoting it. But a lot of times we find uh, the kind of thinking that is contrary to the gospel. Today our society sees the body as unnecessary to who we are. And one way that Christians have picked this up is by thinking that the resurrection of Jesus makes our bodies supernatural. After we die and we're raised up to the Lord, we will lose these bodies, is that way of thinking. We will have a more supernatural existence with the Lord without the physical definition of our bodies. With this way of understanding our bodies, they're more like shells that hold us back right now. But one day, the Lord will break us out of our shells and our spirits will soar into the heavenlies free and unencumbered and unlimited 
We will be like lights dancing in the presence of God. And another idea about our bodies that some Christians have begun to take up, and this is pretty recent, uh, they're trying to fit, uh, fit this way of thinking in with Jesus' resurrection, and it's, that it's, it's the idea that we could digitize our minds, our interior self, and free them from our decrepit old bodies. So there's this new organization that's formed called the Christian Transhumanist Association, CTA. It is actively dedicated to promoting transhumanism as a means of participating, this is a quote, participating with God in the redemption, reconciliation, and renewal of the world. Let's work alongside with God and, um, and, and kind of transform our, or not transform, but um, create this new kind of humanity. Transhumanism is a futuristic social movement. Its adherents believe that immortality, living forever, is attainable through the wonders of applied technology. So, right, that's our society, totally captivated by our technology. And so we now have this idea that we can use our technology to uh, create immortality. And then there's this Christian spin on it that that's somehow participating or cooperating with Jesus' resurrection. So the idea with transhumanism is that by encoding our, our interior self, what we might call the mind, and transferring it onto a digital platform, we can do that, and then you've taken the self out of the body and you can get rid of the body. The Christian Transhumanist Association believes that is how we can participate in the new life of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Well, Scripture teaches us to think of our bodies according to Jesus' resurrection. And while we cannot understand many things about what will happen to us because of Christ's resurrection, we can know a few things by listening to what Scripture says about Jesus' body. And that's clearly in our text this morning in the Gospel and the Epistle. What happens to Jesus' body reveals some basic things about what will happen to the bodies of those who are united to him in faith. First, Jesus' resurrection reveals the transformation of our bodies. In our gospel lesson, the risen Jesus enters the room where his disciples are gathered, even though the doors are shut. Verse 19 of John 20 says, On the evening of the day when Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And then a little bit later, verse 26 says again, Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them this time. The doors were shut. John makes a point of saying that again. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Jesus was able, with his body, to enter the room even though the doors were shut. There was something different about Jesus' embodiment after his resurrection. Before his resurrection, Jesus entered buildings like everyone else. There were moments during his ministry that the glory of his divinity was revealed, such as on the Mount of the Transfiguration. But his body was still his pre-resurrection body, and he entered rooms like everybody else. However, after his resurrection, his body was different. That comes out in our story. He could enter the room without opening the door. So there's wonder in this story. We can sit here and try to figure that out, speculate on it and everything, but we're not given a whole lot of explanation there, are we? So there's wonder in the story, but it does communicate something that his post-resurrection body was not quite the same as his pre-resurrection body. 
John goes to the trouble to tell us twice that the doors were shut, and yet Jesus came anyway. For Jesus' disciples, it was excitingly strange. John was one of those disciples. It's excitingly strange, and John communicates that to us. It it might be something we miss. The doors were shut. That's okay, a little detail. No, that's excitingly strange, and that's what John is, is relaying to us. John does not want us to interpret this to mean that Jesus' body morphed somehow after the resurrection morphed into an incorporeal form, like he became a ghost or a bodiless spirit and he can just kind of float through things. That's not what's being said here at all. In the story, Jesus has hands. He has feet. He, He has a side. He has a mouth. He has a face and so on. That all is very clear in the story. And they're not mere impressions of body parts. Like if you went up to him, you could stick your hand through it. You know, it looks like it, but it's not really there. No, they're the real thing. That's why Jesus invited Thomas to stick his finger in them, because they're real. Like Jesus, our bodies will be transformed. Now, I must say that that does not mean that our bodies, made new by the risen Jesus, will be identical to his. And here again, we can go too far and start thinking, oh, I'm going to be just like Jesus. Well, you are never going to be just like Jesus, okay? We'll be like Jesus, but not identical. Our imagination starts spinning, and we might begin to think that we will be able to pass through the physical barriers, jump from one place to another in a single bound. We will be able to read each other's minds and know all things, and I really hope not. <laughs> we watch the Marvel you know, movies, and we start to think, yeah, that's, that's me. no. Our imagination starts spinning and we think that. And so we begin to draw this conclusion that we will be supermen and superwomen. Well, Jesus Christ is unique. He is God who became man. We will never be that. He added our humanity to his divinity without losing his divine nature. Jesus is the glorious, holy, almighty God who became man, and we will never be that. Even after we're raised up and our bodies are made new, we will never be that. We will always be God's creatures. We will never become God. Jesus is not identical to us. Now, he did become man. He did so to redeem us from sin. And we don't want to shortchange that. He became fully human. Jesus Christ embodied the existence of our sinful humanity in order to heal us. The Gospel of John says he took our Gospel of Matthew says he took our infirmities and bore our diseases. But he had no desire to sin, like we do. Therefore, Jesus reveals that his resurrection transforms our bodies, but that does not mean that we will be identical to him. That being said, you who have faith in Jesus will be transformed by the resurrected Jesus. Your your whole being, including your bodies, will be transformed. Your bodies and your whole being and your existence is transformed by the risen Jesus. Now let's think about that for a minute. Your bodies have been corrupted. After sin entered the world, your body, our bodies have become corrupted. We might say they're broken. Oh yeah, we can still run around and do amazing things with our bodies, at least when we were young. I'm still trying to do that here at 60, but um, not so much anymore as I used to. We can do that when we're young. However, our bodies begin to unravel as we get older. For example, in the last two years, my joints have started to tear and become inflamed. My brain gets foggy. My esophagus gets restricted, and I can't swallow food. Also, the sins that you have committed have an effect on your body. 
the boomer generation has seen a dramatic increase in hepatitis B. The CDC on their website, I know a lot of us don't want to go to the CDC and look at their website, but there's some things that are helpful there, information. Hepatitis B, it says on the website, can be transmitted through sexual activity. Unvaccinated adults who have multiple sex partners along with sex partners of people with chronic hepatitis B infection are at increased risk for transmission. So it turns out that that slogan the baby boomers had, the free sex, turns out to not be so free. In your embodied existence in this life, you get sick. We all know that. Not necessarily because you've personally sinned, but because you live in a world that has fallen into sin, and that has a consequence on your body. You suffer in this life. There is mental anguish like worry and anxiety and fear, but these are not secluded from your body. You are an embodied person. And as much as we might try to operate by that rule, that that little line, uh, mind over matter, your body and your mind are wrapped up together. And therefore, what goes on in your mind has an effect on your body. That may be why you're constantly chanting mind over matter, mind over matter. Well, that's because it doesn't quite work. Your mind and your body are interconnected. And conversely, what happens with your body has an effect on your mind. So what's funny about this song? too funny, but as I was writing this, as I was writing that line in this sermon, my hamstring and my leg cramped up and I had to jump up out of the chair. <laughs> so I thought I would let you know that. <laughs> Your embodied existence extends beyond you too. It's not just these things I'm talking about that happen to you, the corruption of your body and, and uh, suffering and, and getting sick and all that. It also extends, uh, your embodied existence extends beyond you to society. We live in a society fractured by sin, which is another way of saying that our embodied existence together is corrupted. And finally, of course, you die. We all die. Death death takes us and our embodied existence dissipates. Now, it might seem like the way out of this is to have a completely different body, some kind of replacement that's not subject to sin, corruption, and death. And this is what pre- precisely what many Christians believe. Our old bodies will be cast off and they will be replaced by something else. It's like trading in your old gas-guzzling car and trading it in for an electric car. That's kind of the thinking there, using a Detroit sort of analogy. Um, so a replacement. And so in this way of thinking, new means replaced. But that is not what Jesus' resurrection reveals, does it? When we listen to the story in the Gospel of John, it is his old body made new. It hasn't been replaced. Now, I thought about choosing 1 Corinthians 15 for our epistle text because in it, Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead in our bodies, right? The apostle does this by drawing a couple of contrasts between a seed that is sown and the grain it becomes, between the perishable and the imperishable, between a physical body and a spiritual body. So Paul says in in one of the verses, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. And some have read this as a replacement of kind, The physical body dies and is replaced with an immaterial body, whatever that is. But that's not what Paul is saying here. In these comparisons, there is a correspondence between the two things compared. The seed that is sown is transformed into the grain. Think about it. Paul's using a very common metaphor there that we we know 
you plant the seed, and, you know, some of you probably planted some seeds for this spring, for the, you know, planting some flowers or vegetables. You plant a little tomato seed, you don't expect to see a cucumber plant grow, right? There's a relationship between the seed and, and the grain or what it turns into. The grain is not substituted for the seed. That's not what Paul's saying. It's a different form of existence, but it's not organically different. The seed is materially related to the grain. And the same thing with the physical body and the spiritual body. They're not two independent bodies, one replacing the other. They're two different modes of existence. The spiritual body is, that Paul is talking about here has to do with the Holy Spirit. So this is one of the problems with a secular society is it sees the word spiritual and it defines it a certain way that is devoid of the Holy Spirit. But that's not at all what Paul is talking about here. The spiritual that Paul is talking about here has to do with the Holy Spirit. The spiritual body is the body that has been made new by the Holy Spirit. It is spiritual because it embodies the fullest outworking of the Holy Spirit. It's glorified, it's brought to completion, it's sanctified, but it's not replaced. Jesus' body, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified on the cross, was transformed and not replaced. Jesus' embodied existence was transformed so that it was no longer subject to corruption and sickness and suffering and sinful society and death. Jesus' resurrection also reveals the continuity of our body before and after his resurrection. So it does reveal transformation. It also reveals continuity of our body before and after his resurrection. The story of Jesus entering the room with his disciples tells of Jesus showing the nail holes in his hands and his pierced side to his disciples, especially to Thomas. Verse 20 says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The risen Jesus still had hands and a side. The bloody marks of his crucifixion were there in his hands and in his side. And therefore, or furthermore, he had a face, he had a mouth with which he spoke to his disciples. He also had feet and legs upon which he stood in the room. Jesus was embodied in that room, and it was with the body that he had when he was crucified. Albeit, now it was transformed, but it was the body with which he was crucified. John's story of the risen Jesus has continuity in it between Jesus' pre-resurrection body and his post-resurrection body. Now, John also wrote a letter to the church where he refers to John's body, uh, Jesus' body, and that's our epistle lesson. He wrote three letters, but we're referring to the first one. This is our epistle lesson this morning. It's a letter to a church where some dismiss the importance of Jesus' flesh and deny the importance of the body. Not only the personal body, but the body of the church, the fellowship of the, of the, uh, the physical you know, human gathering of, of Christ's people in the church. The first letter of John has a prologue in it, just like the Gospel of John. The, the Gospel of John is famous as prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he was in the beginning with God. That's, that's famous. We, we all are aware of that prologue. It's sort of an introduction to the Gospel of John. John did the same thing with his letter. The prologue of 1 John um, has some key words in it. Key, key words that are the same as in the prologue in the Gospel of John, like beginning and life and manifest. Those are words in the prologue to the Gospel of John. They're also in the prologue to the uh, first letter of John. But the prologue of the first letter of John is shorter 
than the gospel, the prologue of the gospel of John. And the prologue to the first letter of John concentrates on Jesus' incarnation, on his becoming flesh and having a body. At the end of the prologue of the Gospel of John, and I hope you're following me on this, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us at verse 14. So it's a longer prologue in the Gospel. It goes 14 verses until 14, or a little bit longer. And then the 14th verse, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the first epistle of John, it says it right away in the first verse. Right away. The first verse says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. In other words, flesh. The body. It highlights the incarnation of Jesus. John immediately draws our attention to Jesus' physical body in his letter. There's good reason to believe that John's opponents, the ones who were disrupting that church, the ones he's concerned about might might fracture and wreck that church, that his opponents were misusing the prologue of John's gospel. So they knew his gospel, and they they, they liked parts of his prologue of the gospel, and they were isolating these parts that talk about about Christ's preexistence and his bringing light and life into the world. They liked those parts, but they were isolating it from his, his incarnation. He's the word who became flesh. Therefore, in his letter, John refers to the prologue of his gospel, but he zooms in on Jesus' flesh because that church needed to hear it. With that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Boom, right out there. Those opposed to John in the church considered his pre-existence important, but not his incarnation. Well, today it's kind of gone the other way, where Christians do not think Jesus' incarnation matters after his resurrection. There are those who consider Jesus' resurrection existence important for our future life, but not his incarnational body. Well, First John tells us that Jesus' body is essential to who we are, uh, that Jesus' body is essential uh, to who he is and who we are before and after um, his resurrection. We are embodied creatures, and at no point should we try to turn our existence into disembodied beings. At no point. In the modern era in which we live, this has been done with the claim that a human person is one who is able to reason and can make choices. That's what a human person is. According to this way of thinking, it's the interior part of us that really makes us who we are, not the body. The body is something that we use, but it's not essential to who we are. This is one of the assumptions in the pro-choice abortion position and with the transgender movement. The baby is not, the, the conceived baby in the womb is not a person because it cannot live independent from its mother and think and choose for itself. We can reassign our gender because the body is something we can make uh, any way we want it to be. We can choose a certain way, and then the body, is just we just use it and, and re, try to recreate it to be the way we want it to be. So the body's sort of just a side to who we really are. Jesus' resurrection reveals the necessity of the body for who we are as human beings. It's called, there's a fancy name for this, it's called an anthropology of embodiment. Anthropology means what it means to be human. It's an anthropology of embodiment. We are embodied creatures. We are more than wills that choose and minds that think. 
And we are embodied from the beginning of our existence and from then on. In our embodied existence, we are limited, dependent, and weak. And we have no trouble seeing this with babies in the womb. But it's always true for us throughout our our whole life. It's always true for us. Our society looks at a 35-year-old as independent, free, strong, and it wants to reinforce that and sort of expand that out to say that's, that's really the fullness of being human. Anything less than that is less than human. But a 35-year-old is limited, weak, and dependent also. It may not be as obvious, but they are. We are conceived in an embodied relationship to other people, and we depend upon others in one way or another our entire life. It might take on different forms, but it's always true. And there's nothing wrong with that. Our culture generally does not understand this. As embodied people, we are necessarily weak, limited, and dependent from the moment of our conception until we are 100 years old, if we live that long. We will always be weak, limited, and dependent on Jesus Christ. Right? For our salvation, for our completeness, for our life. And you and I are to be witnesses to this in the culture. Christ sends us out to bear witness to his resurrection for our whole embodied existence, not just our mind and not just our choices. So may the risen Jesus Christ transform us from the denial of our embodied existence to gratitude for our embodied existence with him, both now in this life and in the new life after we are raised up with him. Let us pray. O God, whose blessed Son made himself known to his disciples bodily, open the eyes of our faith that we may behold him in all his redeeming work and go forth as his faithful witnesses, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us now stand and confess our faith. We're basically stating what we believe here. We've, we've heard that, for, that John chapter 20 has four stories of belief. Well, here's the, the fifth story. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. 
Amen. Our hymn is number 305, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Supper with his disciples before his crucifixion, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did so also with the cup, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And when Jesus instituted his holy supper, and I remind you of this often, but when he instituted it, he used real bread and real wine, which are signs of his body and his blood, but they're also real food for our bodies. And so the two, the metaphor comes out in a very strong way that he feeds us with his real uh, resurrected body. By doing so, he reveals that his death and resurrection is for the physical part of us as well as the spiritual part, which fits very well with the sermon. The Lord created our bodies and he redeems them to love him and obey his word along with our hearts and minds. And also, the bread and the cup show us that the creation is included in God's redemption in Christ, right? What Paul says in Romans 8, creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. 
When you hold the bread and cup in your hand, know that your body is redeemed by Christ, and so is his creation in which you live. It's my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all of the who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members of a Christian church to come to this, the Lord's table. It is the Lord's table. He invites us to feast with him. And those who come to this holy meal promise to love and trust and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life and to live in love and concern for each other. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our new life and our salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is indeed right and our great joy and our responsibility always and everywhere to give you thanks, Almighty and Eternal Father. And in these final days of the time of Easter, we celebrate with joyful hearts the memory of your wonderful works in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. You have healed us. You have provided us with food, houses, and work. You have done all these great things for us. But most of all, by the mystery of his passion, Jesus Christ, your risen Son, has conquered the powers of death and hell and restored in men and women the image of your glory. He has opened to us the gate of life eternal. So, in the joy of this Easter time, heaven and earth resound with gladness. And the host of heaven and all the powers of creation, as we see in Revelation 4 and 5, sing forever the hymn of your glory. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Accept our praises, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we follow his example and obey his command, grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit, these gifts of bread and the cup that we drink may be for us a communion in his body and blood. We receive them with faith, and we proclaim with your church in heaven victory to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing and glory and honor and thanksgiving and honor and, and power and wisdom and might be to you, our God, forever and ever. Therefore, Heavenly Father, we remember his Jesus' offering of himself made once and for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom, and with this bread and this cup, we make the memorial of Christ, your Son, our Lord. Accept through him, our great high priest, this, our offering of thanks and praise. And as we eat and drink these holy gifts in the presence of your divine majesty, renew us by your spirit, inspire us with your love, and unite us in the body of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. With one voice we now offer our thanksgiving, and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. God, our Father, whose Son, Jesus Christ, gives the water of eternal life, may we thirst for you, the spring of life and source of goodness. Through him, through him, who is alive and reigns now and forever. Amen. The final hymn is number 518, Christ, the hope of all my grounds.
peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. seated. I just want to bring your attention to some points in the bulletin. The, the, uh, uh, yes, the bulletin. Beginning with the resumption of Christian education class today. So Christian Ed resumes today. A reminder that um, There will be a formal reception and brunch for Rebecca and Daniel Swanson on June 11th, Saturday, June 11th, 9.30 to 11 o'clock in the morning at Oakland Hills Church, our sister church out in Farmington. Thursday Bible study resumes this week at 7 o'clock here at the church. And there's a Friday evening prayer meeting. Uh, this on the 27th, this last Friday of May at 6.30 at Leah Reinert's condo. Um, and on that, <clears throat> Leah, are we asking people to bring something, right? So, I'm uh, going to do kind of a salad thing. So, I'll bring salad. Um, and I'm also going to have sloppy jokes. Okay. So, okay. So bring some kind of salad. Yeah. Okay. And, um, might help with another college get an idea. Okay. And with my complex, there's numbers spots, there's visitor spots. He's not parked in a spot that he has a number. Um, there's not a whole, I'm at the end of my street, and there's not a lot of visitor spots up by me, unfortunately, but... But just right around the corner. <laughs> yeah, right. Just not very far, right around the corner, in that parking lot. There's spots. So Leah was saying um, she's going to provide sloppy joes, but if you could bring some kind of salad, and um, and then park in the visitor spots, and uh, oh, and then email her, just to let her know you're coming. <clears throat> Anything else? Emily. Thank you very much for your prayers for my dad. Um, the surgery went great, and his recovery is, recovery is going really well. Um, has an outlook in the neighborhood already. Wow. <laughs> um, reportedly, he's being a somewhat, uh, somewhat uh, helpful patient. So. <laughs> Thank you for Good. your prayers. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Deneen? 
Very good. All right, thank you. Enjoy some what remains of the prepackaged snacks. (laughs) 